Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Corey Bergeron, and if you're not familiar with him, Corey is a producer, mixer, and a guitarist. He is the studio manager and head engineer at a place called Pebble Studios in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and he's also in the band Locket. And that band name might sound familiar because last week, I actually had Brad Garcia on the podcast, and Brad also plays in Locket. They're an incredible band full of amazing engineers, so uh, it was great to connect with both of them. Um, But in today's episode, we're chatting with Corey, and we get into a lot of really interesting conversations. And we actually touch on a subject that we've never talked about on this podcast before, which is the idea of working on Fiverr, which if you're not familiar with Fiverr, Fiverr is a website that kind of has a notorious reputation for being a place where people charge $5 per project. And it kind of seems like a bit of an unsustainable business model for freelancers to work on there and charge very low dollar amounts for high value work. But that said, Corey has managed to be very, very successful on it. Um, you don't only have to charge $5 on it, and you'll you'll learn more about that on this episode here, but typically that's kind of where it starts. But Corey has been very, very successful on there. He's made over $100,000 on Fiverr, and just he's doing incredible work on there. Plus, between managing the studio and the success of his band, he's got a lot of different streams of keeping busy and different streams for income and all that kind of stuff. So we get into some really interesting conversation all about yeah, working on Fiverr, managing his systems, uh, optimizing his processes, all that kind of stuff. And I think that if you're someone who is getting started in this industry and you're trying to figure out avenues to start getting paid clients, or if you're someone who has been at this for a while and you're still struggling to get clients, I think you're going to find a lot of great stuff in this episode. And also, if you're the type of person who just generally finds that you're unorganized or you're a little bit slow with your processes, I think you're going to also learn a bunch of great stuff from this episode too, because Corey is definitely a systems-oriented guy and uh, focused on optimizing stuff. And I think there's a lot of really, really good stuff here. So with that said, let's just jump into this episode. Corey Bergeron, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going, man? It's going great. Thank you very much for having me. I uh, I heard that Brad, the, uh, the singer of my band, was on yesterday and... Uh, he said uh, he had a great. He sent me a, a text. He said he had a great time and that uh, we would get along. Nice. Really nerdy stuff in a positive way. Let's get super nerdy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I've I've actually run, had a series of episodes lately that haven't been super nerdy. So uh, let, let's let's dive in. Like let's go let's go to town. <laughs> For people who might not be familiar with you, can you give us a little bit of your background on who you are, what you do, and how, ultimately how you got into all this stuff? Yeah. So. Okay, so what do I do? I play guitar in a band called Locket, and we've been a band. The band members have been a band for a while, um, but we've just put out our second album uh, through Fearless Records called Superluminal. So that is one side of of what I do. On top of that, I'm the studio manager, and here where I live in Ottawa, Canada, uh, I run a recording studio called Pebble Studios. Um, for a long time, that studio was uh, primarily tracking and like mixing bands like a commercial studio would. But in recent years, I've really transitioned over into just doing a lot of post-production work. Um, I have a full-time assistant as well, which makes things great. And then on top of all that, I am a, uh, I'm a 
a human being living in 2023. So I do some content creation on top of that. I have a recording uh, or an audio recording channel <laughs> on YouTube called Corey Bergeron Recordings, where I essentially just break down things that are interesting, interesting to me. I'll review things as well as I'll just kind of like talk on my philosophy of recording and, and share any knowledge uh, that I have with uh, whoever's willing to listen to it. Right on, man. How did you get into the music production side to begin with? So this goes way back. So when I was, so I started playing guitar when I was like 13, my dad uh, played guitar and there, was, there were guitars at home. So I kind of had an interest in that and that quickly um, turned into me trying to like start a band. So I tried to find anyone, you know, in my school that played uh, instruments. And so I started jamming with some friends over the years and that naturally turned into how do we record this? And this was a, a completely different time. 15 years ago is a long time in the audio world. So I actually started recording or I saved up some birthday money and I bought a Tascam DP01FX, which is an all-in-one like recording, uh, multi-track recorder. Uh, with a hard drive, a physical hard drive in it. So you would record, it would it had two preamps in it and you could record st straight to the disc on it. And then you'd have to plug it in USB 2.0 and export WAV files off of it is how that worked. So that was my introduction to recording. I had two uh, 58s, SM58s, and I attempted to record <laughs> my really crappy bands. I didn't get very far, but that kind of piqued my interest. And then... As I was finishing high school, my best friends were going to university for physics and other smart people things. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do outside of music. So locally where I live, uh, at uh, there's a college called Algonquin College. I ended up taking the music industry arts program there. When I went to college for orientation, that's when I found I was with a bunch of like-minded uh, individuals. And uh, they all had a similar interest in me. And I found for the first time in school that I didn't have to like force myself to pay attention. I was just genuinely interested in everything. Never studied for a test, got great marks um, and just kind of immersed myself into that environment. And fortunately, after that, after the program, I was able to land a job at a recording studio. It's like the most unheard of path ever. <laughs> um, and I became like uh, the head engineer at a recording studio. And that is essentially how I got into recording. I can keep going down the path, but that is, that's the long answer to your, your yeah, question. Yeah. No, I love how you said that was like the, the uh, most unheard of thing ever to find a job right out of school at a studio. It's like, it's kind yeah. of, it's kind of the thing that I think all students expect to happen, but then the hard reality is that it never does. <laughs> or it's like, it's, it's very, very hard to get in at least for most places. Absolutely. And there's so much to it because you need to have, well, as you know, to make a living in music is challenging. It takes time to like nurture and craft your skills, to network, to build up a resume, all these things. And it's, it's an all consuming process. You need to have like an insane level of dedication uh, to the point that I generally recommend, I shouldn't say I generally recommend, but in order to to live this life, you have to be some kind of crazy. And I mean that in a positive way, like you have to be dedicated and it, it can be very challenging. So it's not for everyone. And 
I lost where I was going with that, but <laughs> those are my thoughts. No, but I think you're right. Like if you want to actually make it in this industry, you have to be hungry. You have to be like super passionate about it. And it's, it, there is kind of this like survival of the fittest to some degree. So it's like, you have to be the person that's going to work your ass off and make yourself known so that you can get these opportunities, like working in a studio or, you know, having bands hire you and all that kind of stuff. It's just like, you just have to be going for it. You can't expect it to come to you. So, um, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about how, like, you know, a lot of these students, like that, like they're going to graduate from a, a school and all of a sudden have a job. It's like the hard reality is that that's not always the case. You have to like, there's, you have the foundational knowledge, I guess, but then now you have to like figure out how to work, you know, and like how yeah. to make yourself known. Right. So you have to make a job. Essentially, you have to find out how you're able to give value to other people um, and make a job. And further to your point on you have to be hungry. You have to be consistently hungry. I am 10 years in. You can't take your foot off the gas pedal. Like it's it's just the nature of the business. Things are always changing. And as you get older, it's your job to continue to be on the front lines and learning and absorbing as much information as possible and being accepting of changes in the industry, changes in music trends and everything that comes with it. Um, so I can't stress enough. It, it takes a, a, a level of devotion. Um, and, but it's great. <laughs> I, don't, I, I feel like I'm painting it in a negative way. I chose to do this and I enjoy this. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're absolutely right. And I think like, if you want to take it as a serious career, then you definitely have to be serious about it. Um, and then, you know, for the other people in the audience that are listening that like, aren't necessarily trying to get jobs in this industry. It's like, even if you're still trying to record yourself, you still have to be hungry. You still have to be hungry for knowledge. You have to learn the trends and like follow the trends and everything you just talked about there. Because if you want your music to still sound modern and meet today's quality standards, you have to be working at it. You have to be pushing yourself to continue to learn that stuff and try new things and not just get stuck in your old ways. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an amazing time to be a music maker of, of any sort, whether you're, you're a hobbyist um, or you're, you know, your aims to be a music produ producer or you want to be a mixer or you just want to you know, play in a band with your friends uh, because there are so many amazing tools and resources out there uh, that allow you to do it easier than ever, as well as all the information is out there. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I remember when I started, like we'd be on, you and I were probably on the gear sluts, you know, forum and reading things. Don't do anything more than 60 B of compression. You just hear these random things. It was hard to tell where good information comes from or sorry it was hard to tell if the information you were getting was good information and if it applied to you, you know the genre of music that you worked on or you know where's mm. where's this information coming from what's the bias with this um whereas now uh, i know that you offer consulting and, and uh courses i believe and there's tons of great information out there yeah yeah and it's funny it's like yeah there's, there's so many things out there that give you these like so-called rules of audio. And so anyone mm. who's just like learning sees these things and they're like, okay, I guess like I'll, I'll never, I'm never, now that I know that I'm never going to push the limits. I'm never going to go beyond that thing and mess it up. And then sometimes like, it's like, you have to just try it, see what happens. What's the worst that happens. Right. Like I remember in school, like somebody saying something like, Oh, never put a condenser mic on drums, like, or never like distort, never like clip the mic preamp. And 
And then, like, of course, my first day working in a studio, like, that was exactly what we did. And, like, you know, we cranked the shit out of the preamps. It was distorting like crazy. And it ended up being the coolest sound. And that was, like, the perfect thing for the job. And, you know, then we had, like, that 47s on, on kicks and stuff like that. And I was like, whoa, what, like these are professionals that have told me I, these are the rules as well, you know, like, and, and now to actually see the real world and how people were implementing it was like a complete eye opener. And, you know, then you're like, okay, now I get it. Like you, you have to understand the intention of those rules, I suppose, but also know right. how far you can go and why and when. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so coming up or actually starting tomorrow, I've abandoned Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we're going to be recording essentially a bunch of guitars and a bunch of vocals. That's essentially the goal for the weekend. And I have my assistant, I have him set up in a vocal booth so I can be tracking guitars while he's cutting the vocals due to the nature of this project. There's going to be a little bit of experimentation with the vocals. So I just want to get the ball rolling there. If we get final takes, fantastic. Uh, If it's just a way to kind of sort out the idea, that's also a success. So I went and I set up a preamp and a compressor in his, like booth. So it was a 610 uh, preamp and a distressor. And the thing I love about the 610 uh, preamp is just how crunchy it gets. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm telling him like, while you're tracking, you essentially want to be one level under that distortion, you know? So if you know, he's going to be belting it, you can manually ride this. But the beautiful thing about this preamp is that it's not perfect. And, you know, once you kind of understand that you can, you can use your, your taste to dial in the vocal sound that you like. So we were setting that up and I was just kind of testing the mic and he goes, Oh, I think we're compressing pretty hard. I, I we're doing a 12 DB of gain reduction. And I was like, okay, this is a rock vocal. We're probably going to hit it 20 on the way in. And then we're probably going to hit another 20 in post. <laughs> and who knows what more after that? Like, don't be, don't be afraid to, well, I guess the, the greater, uh, the more important thing here is, does it sound good? Cause we both just agreed that it sound good. And then you're telling me that with your eyes, you're telling me that it's doing, you know, 12 DB of gain reduction. And so if it sounds good, it is good. And also trust your gut. And it was, it was a nice little reminder to me because uh, this is his first time kind of using the hardware. And to me, I'm like, Oh yeah, just make it, you know, just crunch it. Just do that. Just do that. And he's hesitant to do it just because he doesn't have the same amount of experience yet. But the ultimate, uh, I guess, point I'm getting to is, yeah, if it sounds good, it is good. It doesn't matter if it's clipping. It doesn't matter if it's that. Just if it sounds good, it is good. Yeah, that's definitely the golden rule for sure. <laughs> no, but I, but I think that that's also like, a, it is a good story to tell because, um, you know, even the fact that you mentioned like, you know, getting 20 on the way in and 20 after the fact, you know, like some people would be like, oh, I crushed it on the way. And like, I, I, there's no way I can touch it on the way out too. Right. And like in the mixing stage. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's just like, yeah, it, it, all that matters is it does it sound good or not. And you have to understand that sometimes that means pushing things to the extreme and don't be shy with your settings to, to get that. But yeah, right on. Um, so we were kind of talking about like getting, you know, going from college, getting a job at the studio um, and is that the same studio that you're working at now? Yes. So I've worked there in a couple different capacities, but long story short, yes, same studio. Right on. I, oh, I, yeah. And, and were you like exclusively working there? Were you freelancing outside of there as well? Or So I did go through phases where I was freelancing. Um, and essentially, 
it's it's a really unique relationship so it's hard to like relate it to any other type of job but essentially i have a fantastic relationship with the owners and the owners have multiple different businesses so they built this music studio in the early 2000s with the goal they had uh, children that were like pursuing music careers so they were spending tons of money on recording studios and they're like, huh, why don't we just build our own recording studio? And in 2001, that might not have been the worst idea ever. And um, to build a commercial recording studio and invest a, a big chunk of change into it. So that's what they did. And uh, it you know, had some success in the, in the early 2000s. But as things changed, they, they always found it was kind of a challenge to keep, keep it, the studio bumping. And I live in Ottawa, as I mentioned, which is not a, a huge thriving music market. So I'll... Yeah, a lot of the artists that I work with generally come from out of town. And essentially, yeah, there was a period where I was freelancing. But I just, uh, everything I do, the studio is essentially my business at this point, um, to, to make it simple. Fair. <laughs> well, yeah. you, kind of, you kind of brought up a good point there, which was like a couple of things there, which was that like, number one, you're not in a big market. And number two, like, you know, the the days of studios just having a flood of people coming through them are pretty non-existent these days. It's like you, you have to find ways to bring people in and uh, step outside of the traditional norms of a studio. Um, and one thing that caught my attention was I was checking out your YouTube channel and you had a video all about how uh, you've used Fiverr and how you've made over a hundred grand selling your services on Fiverr, which I'd love to dive into that if you're, if you're cool with talking about that. Cause I think that that's like for a lot of people getting into this industry, like, First off, most people underprice themselves and they're like, they have no idea where to go. So they look to services like that, where maybe it's like, there's customers waiting for me, you know, like there's that, that, that kind of idea. Um, but also like Fiverr is kind of a bit of a controversial thing in, in the in the creative space sometimes, right? Where people think that like, it's a site where people get undervalued and all this and that. So um, I'd love to maybe talk a little bit about that and how how you introduced Fiverr into your I guess, uh, income stream and, you know, how, how you use that to bring in studio work. Right. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I'm, I'm uh, an open book, so I'm happy to break this, this down. So I started experimenting with it, I think in 2020, like at the very start of 2020. And, uh, obviously that lines up with, with COVID time. So just a generally kind of uncertain time, uh, in the world. And I started messing around with it. And I got the hang of it pretty quick. So just, it's easy to, to have a preconceived kind of idea of what something is. But if you look at what it is, it's just a freelance marketplace where it connects somebody that's looking for a service with someone that provides the service. So I can mix music. I can produce music. I can I don't know, play guitar. There's There's a bunch of different services I can provide on this platform. So that's kind of my mindset going into it. And it opened up, essentially it connected me with no exaggeration, hundreds, if not thousands of different people that I would have never connected with prior to that. Um, you know, I'm working with artists from all over the world. And when I started doing it, I was doing <laughs> what you said. I was just charging the lowest amount I possibly could to just get a feel for the website. So I was providing way more value than what I was being compensated for, but it was just to kind of get a feel for what the website's doing, build up a resume on the platform and see where it could go. Then I started raising my prices with demand and the demand 
continued. So then I kept raising my prices, kept raising my prices to essentially prices where the value I'm providing, it's, it's a fair transaction. So you can actually charge a fair amount on the platform, but your skills need to, to back it up. If you're going to be charging a premium or whatever you want to call it, uh, you need to be delivering that on as a product. And the beautiful thing is that once you start charging the premium, it eliminates the majority of your problematic clients because the problematic clients are the ones that are going to have unreal expectations and they are going to try and get the lowest price and, you know, just make your life a pain. I'm I'm sure you're familiar with this. So so that was that. And then (laughs) it's kind of become a game in a way because Fiverr, like any sort of, I guess, platform these days, it's, it's like algorithmic. So you just understand what the platform wants from you and you provide that. And then it starts pushing you on the top of every single page. Uh, so then you get even like a higher increase in traffic and you get to the point where you have too much work (laughs) and that's, that's not a terrible place to be in. Um, especially when you're working in music and it's up to you to kind of learn and manage and create efficient systems and figure out how to make, uh, all the systems of making music, uh, better, faster. That's essentially been my experience on it. I've been on the platform since I still do it. and there have been many months where it's been a significant portion of the like revenue that I've generated. I think you covered a lot of really good stuff there that uh, is worth knowing about the platform. Um, so, you know, you kind of talked about how when you first got onto it, you were giving, providing more value than you were earning back. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, And I'm curious to know, was that like, was that intentional at that point? Or was it just like, kind of like, I'm just getting started with this. I'm not sure what I could charge. Like, was that, was that what was causing that, that situation there? Or was it like just the platform expects people to charge very little. So I'm going to just do that for now. It's a good question. It's hard to look back and understand exactly how I was feeling in that moment. Cause I don't remember yeah. my specific circumstance, but I did understand that in order to attract more clients, you did want to have, a resume on the platform, uh, meaning that you have in this, the way Fiverr works is having reviews and having five-star reviews. Um, so it was a way to get the ball rolling. And if I'm remembering correctly, I had the time. So I had, like I had sure. the time to do it. Um, and one advantage I did have on the platform is that I already had a bit of an established brand. Whereas if you looked up my name, you could see things that I've worked on and you could see that I've, worked on projects that have been released through labels and uh, I had my YouTube channel and stuff like that. So um, once the ball started rolling on the platform, my brand and I hate saying that, but uh, my brand outside of the platform gave me the credibility to attract more clients. Gotcha. Yeah. I I guess the reason why I was asking that is because like, I think anyone who's, who's, trying to make money off their career, like they're either in one or two places. They're like, they're either just getting started and that, you know, they often have those fears about how to charge accordingly. Um, or there's the people who are like, I know I'm good. I've got skills. I've been doing this for like 10 years and I'm still needing clients. So like, you know, I need to find new people. Um, and then maybe they look at Fiverr for that. Um, and I guess I'm just curious to know, like 
looking back at it now, like if you were to if you were to start Fiverr today with the skills that you have right now, would you still approach it the same way of, uh, you know, charging little just to like, get, you know, build up that five star rating and stuff like that? Or would you just be like, I know I'm good. Like, I got to charge my value. Like, I think I would do it the way that I did where I charged less. And that might seem controversial, but that's kind of my like my, I guess my personality and just, just, just the way I'm wired, where if I can see that there's light at the end of the tunnel, I'm willing to, to do what it takes, if you will, to, uh, to make that happen. So as long as there is the hope of being able to charge what I believe is fair and have it be fruitful later, um, then I will do what it takes. And I understand that that can be controversial and it could uh, maybe seem like I'm doing the rest of the community a disservice. But truthfully, I didn't think about that very much when I did <laughs> no, but, it. But it kind of makes sense, though. Like, I, I think you're absolutely right that, like, you know, you have to look at it as Fiverr is an algorithm. And, yeah, you can go on there and be like, I'm really good and I'm going to charge a lot, a lot of money for it. But you're not going to get the clients. Maybe you get a couple here and there, but you're not going to have that, like, backing of Fiverr promoting you all the time and all that stuff. So it, there, it's kind of like a, a double-edged sword with it, right? Yes. Uh, going back to your question, would I do it differently if I started today? So I am uh, in the mixing and mastering category. I'm considered a Fiverr Pro. And to become a Fiverr Pro, you need to apply for it and you need to prove that you are a professional in the industry outside of Fiverr. Um, I wasn't, I didn't apply for that until two years into the process. Interesting. Uh, or two years into using the platform. So if I were to start today, I would have definitely done that right from the get go. And I think that might have been a way to speed up that process because you now have uh, hand-selected credibility from the platform itself. Gotcha. Okay. No, that's a, that's a good way to stand out for sure. Um, so then the other the other question I have about Fiverr then would be like, you know, it, it does have that reputation of being people that underprice themselves, and a lot of the cheapest gigs are like literally like five dollars, right? So it's like yeah. a lot of people would look at it and be like, "How the hell can I make any money off of that?" Um, so I imagine that because of the volume of people that you had and because of the low prices, you had to figure out your systems on the back end to make it worthwhile. Um, yes. So I'd, I'd love to dive into that a little bit too, because like that, that carries on outside of Fiverr. You know, it, it's like if you're running this professionally or even if you're not, even if you're just making music for yourself, you don't want to be spending like a month to make a mix, right? If you can build the systems that allow you to make a mix in a couple hours or whatever, then that's ultimately what you want. Um, so as far as systems and... Uh, optimizing that side of things, what are some of the systems you built for yourself on the back end to help you work more efficiently? Great. Uh, that's a, an amazing question. Um, and it is, it is so, so important. So let me just give a little bit of context. I have a full-time, I used to call him an assistant, which I don't think is a fair term because he essentially has his own operation as well. He's just started later in the game. So I was more in a guiding role, but he has made a, he's a pro. <laughs> so we have two, two of us that are working in this, I guess, let's call it a production company, a music production company. Um, and we lean on each other's skills, uh, strength, uh, each other's strengths, um, in order to maximize our time. So one thing that we have is we have a shared Dropbox that's automatically synced. So at any time, like right now while we're talking, he's at the studio, he's working on stuff. It is automatically syncing to my computer right now. 
So if I need to open up a session and do something, or if I need him to revise a mix, or if uh, let's say we're hired to produce a song, I can have him write the drums in real time while I am writing the guitars. And then all the files are in the same place. It's easy to access uh, and everything's organized. So that's one system. On top of that, obviously if I'm mixing, the mix template is, is the most important thing. You need to have uh, an efficient mix template that allows you to get, get you from where you're going to where you want to go. <laughs> I didn't say that right. <laughs> a mix, mix template allows you to you know, take the tracks in and then get where you want to go really fast. Um, and I can, I'm happy to break that down into a, a more granular detail. The, the other thing that we do, because it's two of us working on a lot of the same projects, is we have a Google Sheets and we, we call it active projects. And essentially, we have everything on the go, deadlines, all the information about the, the client and where all the files are. And then we have it all color-coded. So for the next step, if it requires them to do something, we can just essentially tag them, say, like, you're up next, I'm up next. And we're just jumping between each other's projects, doing whatever task needs to be done to get things to the finish line. And then on top of that, communication is so mega vital and so important. And when you're dealing with a high volume of clients, I feel like that's something really that you can let slip very easily. So we kind of have like a, we've developed a way of, of like communicating, if you will, that is effective, but easy and uh, makes it a little bit more manageable because communication is something that I personally struggle with. The other guy is great at it. Um, but I, I've always leaned on hopefully the work speaks for itself. Of course. Yeah. Like I think all of that is really important and definitely like within a, an organization where you have multiple people working out of it, you have to have all of those systems in place. Um, now I feel like some of that is obviously for like efficiency within the business and, and keeping communication lines between everyone. Um, but obviously like you mentioned like the template, for example, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, that that's an area where I think when you're when you're dealing with something like Fiverr or just in general, whatever, if you're trying to get faster, having a template is definitely going to be really important to have. Um, so I'm curious to know, you know, what you've what you're doing with your template that's allowing you to work faster. Like, how, how is that all set up? Because um, I believe you also use Outboard Gear, too, which some people might think would slow you down. So I'm curious to know how that all flows into the template as well. Yeah. OK, so uh, I guess one step before the template is I have a mix prep template. So, uh, sorry. Yeah. Mix prep, like document, a checklist. That's the word. I have a mix prep checklist. Uh, and I'd be happy to send that over. Sure. Um, but essentially it's a bunch of steps that need to be addressed. Like, like addressed by the artist submitting files to you or like with your assistant or something like that. With my assistant with that, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm all over the place here, but I do have an unlisted YouTube video that I send to every single that's automatically sent to every single client and it tells them how to send me the files and how I need it organized. Gotcha. So you put the order in, you get sent this YouTube link and it's a video breaking down how to send me the files. So I, it's, it's important to do this because clients will send you files in all different types of ways. So I say, Hey, nice to meet you. I'm going to be mixing your song. This is how I need the files to do the best job that I can. So if you're sending me drums, please send them. If, uh, if they're like drums that are recorded acoustically, send them with no effects on them. If it's MIDI drums, please send me the MIDI file. I include the tempo information and any markers in the MIDI file and let me know which uh, programmer you used to program these drums. Sorry. Yeah, which instrument you used to program these drums. So someone will send me a MIDI file and say, Stephen Slate drums five. 
So I can then decide when it gets to the mix, do I want to use Stephen Slate Drums 5? Do I want to use, uh, you know, Get Good Drums? Do I want to use Superior Drummer? And I can use a tool like MIDI Remap and just instantly remap those drums to line up with my uh, whatever sampler I decide to use. So that's drums. With bass, usually it's just send me the DI bass. If you have an amp sound that you like, please include that, but definitely I need the DI bass. And then going down, guitars, same thing. Send me the DI guitars and any, if you want to send me the amp files, great. I'll use them for reference. Um, vocals, same thing. You can send me the vocals uh, with tuning if you're confident in the tuning. But if you think that the, like a, a lot of cases, I will add that into the service. Um, so essentially you can send me the dry vocals as well. And then anything else, throw it in a folder called production effects. And you can shoot me a text note in the folder that's breaking down, you know, the song, uh, a couple references that you want it to sound like, the BPM, and any other additional information. And I believe that's it. It's been a while since I've revisited that video, <laughs> but it's been very, very effective. So they do that, and that puts the onus on them to, to essentially get the files organized. And I let them know if you have any questions, just reach out and we can get anything else sorted. So then the files come in. Uh, for the longest time, they were going directly to my assistant. And his job was to go through the mix prep template uh, checklist and to ensure that everything is addressed. And what I mean by addressed is that the question in the mix prep checklist is answered. So an example would be like, address the tuning of the bass. Oftentimes when people record bass, you know, something might be out of tune. So you might want to melodyne it. So I'm not saying tune the bass, but if there's any issues with the bass tuning, address it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Some things are as easy as just checking the box because it's already done, but it's a really thorough process that eliminates all the steps that aren't mixing. And so that goes through, maybe I could, what's another example? Um, you know, timing editing on vocals uh, or guitars or anything like that, getting the drums remapped if need be. And then even I've gone above to say, with my assistant, he's a drummer. So, uh, Sometimes we'll get him to throw an auxiliary percussion as well. As, like if he sees fit kind of thing. Like I, he's can, uh, he can make those creative decisions. So then he puts it into a template, which is a template that I've created. And the template, essentially, I like to work inside folders. So you have production effects, drums, percussion, bass, guitar, vocals. And then if there's strings or piano or whatever, I'll make a, another folder for that. And that all routes to uh, the instruments route to an instrument bus. And then the instrument bus and the vocals all route the final mix bus. In there, I essentially just have a bunch of things set up and ready to go um, in terms of EQs and compressors. So some things are engaged right off the get-go. Some things aren't, but they're there ready to be engaged. Same thing with effects, uh, such as guitar reverb or guitar delay. I'll just have those buses set up, ready to go. So all I have to do is turn up a send, and it's easy to go. Same thing with vocals. Um, and then I'll also have reference tracks. I have like go-tos as well as if the client ever if provides any sort of reference tracks that they want their track to sound like, I'll have my assistant dump those into the mix and I have it routed in a way that I can just press one button and I'm listening to the reference mix. Uh, and then I can press another button. I'm listening back to my mix. I also like to have the rough mix loaded in there, which really helps me understand the artist's vision for the song. And if I have any questions about panning or where, you know, where was this instrument sitting in their mix? I can just quickly switch back and forth and give that a listen. 
And that is, <laughs> that's a, a quick overview of the mix template. No, but that's an efficient system all the way through, just as far as like, you know, putting the onus on the clients to get their stuff organized and then having your assistant kind of do that preliminary work, which also frees up your mental bandwidth so that when it comes to mixing, like you're not tired of hearing the same song and from editing it a million times. And, you know, like it sounds like it's definitely creating this like efficiency throughout, um, which is really important. Um, And I'm assuming like you just to me, you just seem like the kind of guy who would be like really on top of like macros and keyboard shortcuts or something like that like that would help you work yeah. faster there too right <laughs> absolutely yeah it, one of so i'm a pro tools user and the reason why i'm a pro tools user is because i've used, been using it for 10 years i learned it in, in college but if i could restart today i think i would be very persuaded to use um reaper because everything i've looked into it it just seems it seems like it's made for someone like me that's willing to just customize this and make this most optimal uh, DAW. But uh, just to find the time to be able to learn and get up to speed uh, on top of having like a full workload, it, it just seems <laughs> unrealistic at this point. And as you know, once you learn it, it's using the DAW is like, a, like it's like, it's like learning a language. You don't think about it. Your thoughts, my thoughts are in Pro Tools. <laughs> when I think about music and recording music, they're in Pro Tools, that language. Um, so changing that is, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it requires uh, effort. And so who knows? Maybe yeah. if we, we chat again in a couple of years, maybe I'll be using a different DAW. Um, no, I, know, I know exactly what you mean. I, I've debated leaving Pro Tools forever. Like I love Studio yeah. One. I think Studio One is like, from my understanding, it was people that worked at Digit Design or Avid and that left and helped Personas build Studio One. And they were like, let's take all the things people hate about Pro Tools and put them in Studio One and, uh, you know, like fix fix up those things in Studio One. And to me, like, I love that program. It's great. But like, I don't have time to like learn it again, you know, or like, yeah, to like make it my second language. So, yeah, I totally understand what you're talking about there. And I'm sure like, yeah, I've heard a lot of flexibility about Reaper. And, and yeah, it sounds like you can go to town with that, which is awesome. My dream, and this is not like Reaper exclusive, but it is very challenging in Pro Tools, would be to mix an entire record in one Pro Tools session, or sorry, one one session. You know, ha- being able to just have the computer not explode, <laughs> having that all laid out, um, you know, songs back to back to back to back to back, uh, and being able to be like, hmm, let's turn the kick drum up across the board. You know what I mean? Instead of like changing a setting in one and then opening up nine sessions and just making that one db change um so uh i guess all that to say a big part of (laughs) i call them shower thoughts when i'm in the shower i'm thinking about my mix template (laughs) like that's (laughs) those for better or for worse late at night i wake up at 4 a.m can't fall back asleep i'm thinking about making the mix template better um and it is such a vital part of the process and it it can always be further optimized um and it's really interesting looking at how other people navigate that and just taking tidbits from it and trying them out and seeing if it works for you yeah no and i think that's a really good point that you bring up because like just because you built the template once doesn't mean that's it you know like you're gonna find no. different ways to, like you're gonna find new tools that you like to use new workflows whatever and that all has to be built into the template so that it keeps you up to speed uh, and just makes you hope, hopefully every change you're making to the template is making you faster. Otherwise, you shouldn't be changing it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
it's funny. I have these conversations with people and I feel like what comes across is that I'm just thinking about speed. I'm just thinking about how can I get this project done as fast as possible, but it's, it's to eliminate all the steps that just take time. So you can focus on what's important, which is making the good sounding music. So Mm -hmm. it's not just like, how do I make it so I can get 25 projects done in a day? It's how can I make music sound the way I want faster? Yeah. It's not about cutting corners. It's, it's about being efficient and, and yeah, yeah, speeding up that process so you can still work at your most optimal level and, and produce high volume. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, I always love learning about how people are like building their systems because I, you know, it's, it's something that I'm always thinking of, like, you know, how do I how do I make things faster? How am I more organized on the back end? And notoriously, I feel like I'm not organized at all. But that's probably because I'm always thinking of new ways to improve it. So I'm kind of just chasing my tail with it. Right. Um, but uh but yeah, I'd love to maybe shift gears and talk a little bit about some of your productions now, if, if that's cool. Um, and one element of your productions that I really love the sound of is your snares. And maybe as a drummer, like I'm just always on this quest for like the elusive, perfect snare sound, which never exists. And it's, I think, the bane of most engineers' existence. Um, but, but like, as far as getting a great snare sound, like what are some of your tips for for getting like something that sounds really well defined, big, punchy, that kind of thing? That's a good, good question. So I'm a guitar player and what I do obsess about in the mixes most are drums. I, I can't like, I mean, I can, I can hold simple beats, but I, I program a lot of drums and I consult with lots of drummers. I think that's like important. I find drummers make the best engineers just in general, like from the get go, they drums are such a different type of instrument than a guitar or a bass or like keys that I feel like drummers think about music in a different way. And I'm always impressed by what drummers have to say about productions and what, what they pick out out of things. So I've always had that kind of like obsession to be like, I hope the drummer is happy with how I'm mixing his drums. (laughs) When it comes to snares, I like personally, I like snares that just like have that, you know, 200 Hertz weight to them that cut through the mix. Um, and I want to say it's not like, okay, so I like that. And I also like when you can hear like space. So, you know, if a record calls for a reverby sounding snare drum, great. But I'm often trying to create the illusion of like space in a room, like a great sounding drum room. And uh, the goal is generally to, to capture that in the recordings. Um, but it can also be, I mean, more often than not, you're leaning on samples to kind of create that. Um, so I kind of, put in two different parts. It's the, you know, the close mic sound of the drum and then also the ambience. Um, and in my sessions, that's what you'll see. You'll see like a, a close sample and a room sample. Um, and that's just how I've navigated it in terms of recording. You can spend all your time worrying about the snare drum, the mic placement, you know, the skin that you're using the room that you're in, if the drummer can't hit the drums the way that you want, it's all a big waste of time, which is the unfortunate reality. So that's the number one, that's the number one thing is working, making sure that you have the right drummer for the production. And that's, you only have so much control over that. If you agree to record a band, you can't be like, great, let's record the band. Okay. So your drummer, not good enough. Yeah. See ya. <laughs> let's uh, get my friend in here. Uh, you have to pay my friend. And uh, <laughs> so now your drummer's pissed off. You owe my friend money and, but your snare sounds good. Um, you know, unfortunately 
fortunately or unfortunately, you can't you can't get away with that. Um, so <laughs> there was a while where I was avoiding working with some bands if I didn't feel like I could get a great drum sound because of how important the drum sound is. And earlier in my production days, I would record bands and one one project would turn out and it sounds so good. And I would do the exact same approach to another band. And I'd be like, why does this one not sound good? And it was because of, I was, I wasn't sophisticated enough to be using samples and, and uh, everything that comes with that. So it was just because the drummer was good as, as simply as that sounds or as silly as that sounds. So, but if I'm going to be completely honest, I think it's knowing how to use samples effectively and understanding what a natural snare drum sounds like, or the snare drum that you're going for sounds like, and being able to blend that with what the drummer has performed with the goal of creating the sound that you're going for. Gotcha. No, that makes that makes sense. So then like, it sounds like samples are obviously a big, big part of that process for you. Um, Now, in terms of like adding samples, what are you typically looking for in a sample to like, to augment those natural drums? So I'm a fan of like brass sounding snares, just like in general, that's, I, I own a pearl brass snare. Um, and I bought it just because I recorded a drummer that had one and I was like, this sounds incredible. Um, so I like the, how loud and cracky a brass snare is. And when you're dealing with a big rock drums where the cymbals are huge and they're sustaining that being able to have that cut. Um, so when it comes to choosing samples, I'm not overthinking it. I just, I've gone out and looked for like, Hey, who are the producers that make snare drums that I like? Okay. Do they have a sample pack? Okay. What are the type of drums that I like? Okay. Or can I find sample packs of those? And then also when you buy again, like a superior drummer or an easy drummer or any sort of, um, any one of the, uh, products that are out there in terms of drum samplers, it's just clicking through and finding the ones that you like and keeping note of that. So you, over time, you kind of build your, your library of go-to sounds. And even if you use the same snare sound on two different records, depending on how the rest of the drum kit sounds, depending on how you mix it, it's, it can still sound like unique, like its own thing. Um, yeah, I wish I, I wish I had more to, to say, but I feel like it's, it's almost when you know what you're going for, it's just trying to find the way to, to get there. And then it, it almost seems like easy, if you will. Um, something that I've been spending a lot of time on lately is really trying to get the best attack and release times on my drum bus for compression. Um, it's just making like getting things to like vibe, right? Um, not killing the transient, but not making it so the snare's super pokey and sticking out of the drum mix. Um, and then also one of my biggest breakthroughs for nailing like the kick and snare sound for me was, was really understanding parallel compression and getting that to work. Um, yeah, I use that on every single one of my productions. It's that's a way to get that kick and snare stapled. Uh, I call it like pinned in your mix. So that kick and snare is in the same place every single time it's punching. And then that gives you the foundation so you can build the rest of the mix on top of it. If you don't have that kick and snare feeling right, it feels like you're building a house on mud. Uh, I find. <laughs> yeah. And definitely that compression is going to give you some more of that ambience that you were talking about. Right. Like you, totally. know, you can bring up a lot of that room sound and get a lot more of that sustain and weight off of the drums too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as room samples go, 
Um, how are you picking those? Like, what, what are, you, are you just trying to find like, oh, this room sounds cool. Like, let's just use that. Or, or you, is there any more to that? So, so the studio I work at has a really small live room um, or it has a very modest sized live room and it's not very lively. So when I record drums in there and I'm going for a big, let's say in utero, like Nirvana drum sound, there's no way I can capture it acoustically. Like it just, you just can't make it. I have not found a way to do it with microphones. Um, so you want to create the illusion that the drums were performed in a large space. So naturally people will gravitate towards using drum reverb, which can get you somewhere. Um, and it can work. But what I like to do is I like to find a sampler uh, that has a sound library, like uh, click through the sound library to find a, a drum sound that I think would complement the one that I've created acoustically. And then I'll mute everything except for the room mics. And what that does is it creates a kick, snare, and tom. I only do it on the shelves. Uh, a kick, snare, and tom room sound that is. Uh, cohesive they're all in the same space which helps create that illusion or makes the illusion a little bit more believable that this was all part of the recording because the room ambience is uniform between all the shelves so you're so you're, that's so, like so sorry to stop you there but like you're you're actually doing it with kick snare and tom room samples like it's not mm-hmm. just like a snare or whatever okay okay cool yep. yeah um that for me has been like the most successful way of Again, creating what I'm calling an illusion of a real uh, drum room. And then you're able to lean into it. You, you, it's almost better than, than a real room sound because you can lean into compression on it without the cymbals being involved in any way. So you, have, you don't have the annoying cymbals in the rooms and you can, get, um, you can get the room sounding the way that you want. And then when I mix those into the track, I'll kind of turn them up in volume and get them to where I think they jive well. And I'll listen to the entire drum kit, all the microphones at once, and then I'll start EQing it because room mics notoriously have a lot of junk in them. And when you're just listening to it in solo and you're tweaking stuff, it's you lose perspective on what's important. So I find listening to the rooms, whether it's just a snare or the entire uh, or all the shells, uh, listening to those in context with the rest of the drums and then EQing it that way is what's given me the best results. <laughs> no, that, that that's that's great, and and uh, you know one of the things that I also admire about your productions is that you you do tend to use reverb really well, in my opinion, or or at least you create that that illusion of ambience really well, and uh, and so I was kind of curious to know if you lean more towards reverb or using samples, you know, for that kind of thing. But kind of sounds like you're more on the sample side of it, at least with drums. Yeah, I'll I will use both, um, and I'll use a snare reverb and a drum reverb. Like I have both those set up in my template ready to go. Um, I'll generally tweak the decay time of the room to kind of jive with the tempo of the song. I think that's really important. So you don't have just like this room that's too big. Um, And a little bit of reverb blended in with the right room sound and everything. That's to me a bit like, that's what creates that final drum sound. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to know about your drums was that uh, I saw you're also a really big fan of the Soundradix Auto Align plugin, and, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that you you tend to use that. I don't know if you still use that on all of your drum recordings or not, but um, I'm curious to know. Like, I've never. I, I know a lot of people that have 
talked about it and hyped it up. Uh, I've never used it personally, but I'm curious to know, you know, like, um, you know, why you like that plugin and, uh, you know, how it's helping you out. And then there's also the argument that I've heard a lot of people make, and maybe you can address this, that like, you know, mics naturally should have like, because like phase is basically, you know, your timing differences between things. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's that argument that you shouldn't be like time aligning your mics because then it you lose that natural ambience and depth or whatever. So I'd love to get your take on on that and, and how you think, what, what you think about it when it comes to uh, auto aligned. Yeah. Um, okay. So I like auto align and I still remember the first moment I used it. I have recorded drums from nearly 10 years in the same room. So I have a pretty intimate relationship with how recorded drums sound like in that room. And so I, when I had recorded drums, someone pointed me towards auto align. I used it and I was like, Oh, (laughs) that sounds so much better. I am embarrassed at, at, uh, (laughs) the last 10 years of recording drums. Um, when I record drums, I will always measure the snare and the overheads and get them equal distance apart, trying to create an equilateral triangle. And I'll even take the room. I will make the room microphones a multiple of the distance between the snare and the overheads. And with great success, I can get my snares and my overheads playing well together. Um, The thing is you can't get your floor tom. If your snare is in phase with your overheads, your floor tom's not. Like it's not perfectly in phase. And I found one of the biggest differences I heard my first time using it was the low end of the toms was coming through in the overheads. There's a lot of times where I'll mix drums and I have to cut out all the low end of the overheads because it's just, it's making the low end messy. Whereas after using it, it made it all play together. It made my overheads more usable, um, which was an amazing like revelation. So that's been my experience with it. I understand like the criticism of like there are, there's a there's a a plethora of amazing <laughs> drum sounds that have been recorded prior to auto line you know of course even, yeah even ever yeah before that becoming a thing so I think the one thing people miss is there are a lot of drum recordings out there that are not ideal recording situations fair so to just be like, well, this is the way they should, this is the way they do sound acoustically in the room. And we should just have that be like, well, <laughs> I don't know. I just using your ears. It's like this, this sounds out of phase or this is not, these are not playing well together. This is problematic. And then you press a couple buttons and the low ends there, everything feels a lot tighter and it just a B sounds better. And it gives you a, a better starting place to like build your drum sound out of. Um, it's funny on, on, I made a video talking about auto line and I got this like 10 paragraph rant from uh, someone talking about how it's, uh, essentially describing what you mentioned there being like, you need to have those micro delays between everything. And that made me think about it. Uh, but I, I don't know when I AB it, it's just, <laughs> it gives me, I gives me what I want. Gives like me what sound, I like. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess hey, going back to what you talked about earlier, if it sounds good, it is good, you know? So that's uh, that's that golden rule. And and I, I think you're absolutely right, too, that like some spaces just 
don't always work, you know, like there's only so much you can do in a small space. So yeah, if you had like a big space and you can like perfectly measure everything out, I mean, you'll, you'll still never get to perfectly measure it out. Cause like you said, like, you know, you measure your snare and your photons out and that kind of thing. So I think some rooms maybe are a little bit more cooperative when it comes to like phase relationships. And then for the majority of people listening to this, working out of small rooms, it's like you have what you have and you sometimes have to use tools like that to to make it sound better. And if it sounds better, it is better. So that that ultimately is what makes a difference. And kind of also to your earlier point too, if like if you're working in a smaller room and you don't have the greatest ambience, you're probably using ambient samples anyway. So it kind of defeats all that stuff anyway. So like that the distance of like a room mic to a snare or whatever, it doesn't really matter as much. That as well as if you're working in a smaller room, you have to rely on those overheads much more to give you the 3D sound of that kit to give you like that real understanding of this is a drum kit. No one listens to a drum kit with their ear next to the snare mic. Um, so you need all of the information in there. And if you're having any sort of phase relationships, uh, phase relationship issues, and you're, the solution is to cut out the low end of the overheads, you're now in a worse off spot. Um, and your drums might sound like disconnected close mics. Yeah. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Right on, man. Well, I don't, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but uh, the last question I always like to ask everyone is, at the end of the day, with all of this stuff that you're doing, you know, in your opinion, what ultimately makes a great mix? It's a big question. <laughs> yeah. If you, I'm sure if you ask me uh, tomorrow, I'll give you a different answer. What makes a great mix? Um, that's such a hard thing to answer because it's like a, you know, you listen to like Fleetwood Mac and you're like, this is perfect music. And then you listen to like, <laughs> and I was listening to an I Prevail track. I'm not like a fan of the band, but the mixes are they're incredible. incredible. Yeah. They're like, they're up there. I, they might be the best. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, but those are two wildly different goals. Um, so I think it's genre dependent um, or yeah. what makes a great mix. I guess if it achieves whatever the desired outcome is from the get go, which is not a sexy answer, but if you're a band like I prevail, you want it to be the most heavy hitting, impactful, crushing thing that you played on any speakers. And it's just like jumping out of the speaker. If uh, to go back to my example of Fleetwood Mac, it's an authentic representation of the performance with, you know, the right ambience and whatnot that makes everything kind of jive together. That might not have been an answer that you're looking for, but no, but, <laughs> but, but, I, but I it actually it actually is like it's a solid answer because I think the, the fine detail in what you said there was like executing on like the, the the vision that the band had for it. And I think that that's what you need to have going into it in order to actually get the results you want. And if you don't have that, then everything's just going to be random and you're not going to get that result. So um, I think that's a small detail that's important for people to take, take from that. And, you know, at least don't just do things because you saw someone do it, like be intentional about why you're doing it and, and how it's going to help you get that sound that you ultimately want. And I think if you're doing that, then yeah, you're going to meet that that goal of the band. Right. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah. I think that was a good answer because it, it definitely, um, is an important thing to, to, to nail for sure. 
Right on, dude. Dude, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And, and I love dig- digging into this stuff. And um, I think there's a lot of stuff that we covered here that's going to be really helpful for people. And, you know, for people who are just getting started, or people who are, uh, you know, trying to make money in the industry, people who are working on getting the drum sounds better, all that kind of stuff. Like there's a lot, lot of good ground that we covered here. And uh, I'm sure people are going to take away a lot of great stuff from it. So thank you for taking the time to do this. If people want to learn more about you or follow you online, what's the best way for them to do that? You can check out... Uh... I'm all over the internet. Corey Bergeron recordings uh, is the handle. But uh, if you're interested in learning more about audio or just kind of my approach or my thoughts on audio, I have a YouTube channel called Corey Bergeron recordings that you can check out uh, what I have to say there. I aim to post weekly um, as well as if you're, as well as if you're interested in any of the music that uh, I've helped create uh, my band just released an album. So that might be the, uh, uh, the coolest thing to check out at the moment. So you can check out my band Locket. We have an album out called Superluminal. It would be really cool if you took the time to check it out. And uh, I think production-wise, we made something really cool and unique there. So lots lots of uh, cool stuff on that record. It's an incredible sounding record, man. You did an awesome job on it. Congrats. Thank you. So that was my episode with Corey Bergeron. And I really enjoyed chatting with him. And I loved learning more about his processes as far as you know, working on Fiverr and how he manages to make that such a success. And I also found it really interesting to learn about his process for how his clients submit files to him and then how his assistant preps things. All of those little efficiencies can go a real long way in terms of cutting down time. And even if you don't have an assistant, if you're someone who's just like working on your own stuff, at least having the process there is going to help you work faster because you're not questioning what you're going to do with every mix or every prep. You know, that's th- these are the kind of decisions that I feel slow people down is like when when you don't have a system in place, you're kind of just trying to figure it out on the fly. And that takes longer than having a repeatable process that you do every single time. So, you know, I love that Corey has this in place and even if you don't have an assistant, I think you could still follow a lot of what he talked about here in order to make sure that your sessions run smoothly and that you're just organized on the back end. And yeah, not only are you going to be able to work more efficiently because the fact that you're more organized, but you're also going to create better work because you're not going to be using your mental capacity on decisions that should just be second nature. So yeah, I love that Corey brought up all that stuff. And um, it was also really cool to learn more about his approach to drum samples and how he likes to add the room samples and all that kind of stuff. And even working with AutoAlign, um, these are some tools that you know not everyone has messed around with, but they're definitely powerful tools to use and um, they can help you get better results as well. Now, if you're hearing a ton of noise in the background, my dog is just losing his shit. Uh, my, my, my mother-in-law brought over her dog and they're just fighting with each other. So that's why you're hearing all that noise in the background. But anyway, I hope that you really enjoyed this episode. I hope you took a lot of great stuff from it. If you did, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're looking for help with your mixes, if you're not sure what steps you should be taking to get them to a quality that you expect your songs to sound like, I would love to help you out. And inside of my coaching program, Amplitude, I work one-on-one with my students to help get you the results you're looking for. We walk through the recording, editing, and mixing processes from beginning to end, plus you get feedback on your tracks when you mix them. So that way, you can guarantee that you're getting great results. You know, if you're feeling stuck with your tracks, you have someone that you can reach out to to get your questions answered and to learn more about what should you do with things like EQ, compression, automation, volume, etc., whatever it takes to get your songs to the level that you expect them to. So if you're interested in getting one-on-one help with your tracks and getting your home recordings to sound 
just as good as your favorite records, then make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude to find out more information there. And then I'd love to hop on a call with you. I'd love to learn more about the kind of projects that you're working on and your goals to see how I can truly help you. And I only accept people in this program who I truly believe I can help. If you're not a good fit for it, I'll let you know. But if you are, then I would absolutely love to work with you and help you get your songs to that level where you're super excited and pumped to release them. So yeah, once again, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude to find out all the info there. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around and I can't wait to chat with you soon. We'll talk soon. Later. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.